those things that I don't want. Sure, and if and if you create that kind of atmosphere, then uh, when the church fails to uh-huh. provide something that they're not obligated to provide, yeah. um, the, they then suddenly the church is in their mind. That person's mind has done them wrong. Yes, yes. Yeah. You see it all the time on this community chit chat. And, and mm-hmm. on uh, Ozark, mm-hmm. is yeah, anyone mentions uh, something about the poor or whatever? Mm-hmm. It it never fails. Comments in there. Bashing Jane Gerber Assembly yeah. that they don't do enough in our community. I'm like, they just picked out the biggest church and they started attacking yeah. it because yeah. they, when it was really cold the other night, you know, they said, well, why don't they've got all these classrooms? Why don't they just open up their building to everybody that needs warmth? And like, and uh, it wasn't just one off. A bunch of people agreed. Like, yeah, why don't they? <laughs> Meanwhile, they just lost their lawsuit to that guy that walked down one of their roads. He, he was walking, he was a student on their campus. He was walking down the road, the middle of the road. It's their, it's their road, they own it. <coughs> In the middle of the night, he got hit by a car who had fogged over windows and there wasn't enough lighting. He sued Jane Gerber and he just won six, $16 million. Yeah, this came out last week. And, and yet they were... <laughs> Think about all the open doors and all the other things they could they could be sued for if there's accidents. Crazy. Definitely a wild society. Yep. Yep. Your wife taking your notes for you? She is. And the lesson that they're doing is the role of the wife this morning. And so I asked, I said, Hey, take good notes. I want you to re- review that with me later. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> Remind me of all your role as a wife <laughs> later on. All right, let's go ahead and get started. In your notes, you should find uh, the substitutionary atonement in counseling. The theological question number 13, I got it here, and maybe you have it in your notes. It says, provide an example of and the biblical basis for the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Explain the implications of this doctrine for human guilt over sin. Uh, 
this idea of uh, substitution, we all know what a substitute is. I was, I was a teacher for eight years before I was able to quit and work from home. Um, and there's days I'd call in sick and I'd have someone represent me there, right? They'd, they'd be there dealing with all the rugrats uh, of middle schoolers and, and high schoolers and uh, the various times I had substitutes. And, and they had to represent me there. They had to do the lesson and deal with the discipline and so forth. But they were substituted in place of me. Uh, my wife, I don't hardly ever cook. I, I mean, I make eggs in the morning for breakfast. I can make mac and cheese. I grill um, and those are like the, that's the maximum of my capacity is to do those few things, uh, at least doing it well. You know, I can do those things well. Um, but my wife, she's a great cook and sometimes she's making something. She's like, Oh, we're all out of this, you know, this ingredient she needed and she substitutes in something else. And sometimes it's even better that way. Uh, and so this idea of substitute, we know what that is. Um, but one that's not as popular is maybe the word atonement. You know, it's not something that we use in our everyday lives. Um, atonement can be seen several ways, and we'll, we'll look at several of these definitions uh, wrote out by other people of what it is. Um, but you can think of it as a as an, an action of covering, an action of uh, reunifying things, of taking care of stuff. And it'll we'll see it here in the definitions. One of the, the first places I think that we see atonement um, taking place is man's attempt to atone for what they've done, their wrongs. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they covered themselves. It was, it was the, it was, you can almost say it's like the, one of the first religions uh, of, of this religious activity of trying to do something to cover themselves from God as they had sinned, from each other as they had sinned. Um, then we see God clothing them and covering them with the animal skins. In the Genesis 6... We've got the ark, and in the ark, it's the same word uh, talking about covering the ark with, uh, I'm going to totally mess up the words, but the, the pitch and stuff. There's two words there, and I forget one of them. But as, as that covering, one of those words in the Hebrew is the same word that was used in other parts of the Bible as the word atone. It's this covering. It seals it in. And and as as they're covered and sealed in in this ark, they're delivered uh, from the judgment, right? They, they pass into this new earth. Um, after the flood. Uh, later on, and this is a kind of a neat, neat text. Um, there's so many, I call them nuggets in the Bible, just like little tiny things that you, that uh, scenarios or verses that just totally stand out. And this is one of them. And in, in Leviticus 10, this is after the Exodus and they're out in the wilderness. They're, they're getting instructions for the temple. They're building all clothes and, and the tabernacle at the time, I guess. And in chapter 10, verse one, you got Nadab and Abihu. I think I mentioned them last month as well. Uh, the sons of Aaron took either of them, his censer and put fire therein and put incense therein and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out of the fire of the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. The fire just consumed them. So there's this, this, this wild text coming out of nowhere uh, where they had done false fire and it consumes them. They're just devoured. They're dead. Um, and then Moses addresses this to Aaron, the, their dad. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is it that the Lord spake saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh to me. And before all the people, I'll be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. He was just like, I better not say anything wrong, <laughs> you know, like in anger or whatever um, with what his sons have done. And so 
what we have is Israel coming out, being delivered from the bondage in Egypt. Uh, they're into the wilderness now. They get uh, they pass through the sea. Uh, uh, the New Testament talks about that as like a, a form of being baptized with Moses in the sense of going through. Then this newness of life in this new wilderness, they're getting to Sinai after a couple months. They're getting this law. They're building all this stuff. And so it, it's really a somewhat of a picture of like um, this newness, this like the Garden of Eden was. But then sin happened. We have sin happen here. Um, I think it's neat that the next chapter, chapter 11, and this is just, I like to see where things maybe, um, I don't know if I'm entirely right with this, so don't take this as like um, a way of doing theology because it's not, but I, I, I sometimes see the Bible as like these ripples, right? So like if you were to throw a, a stone in the water, you'd see the ripples and they're well-defined at the beginning and the further out they get the the smaller the ripples. And, and so like if we're looking at Genesis and we see the stuff that happened in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning, like small ripples, and then we can see those the similar patterns play out as we go through the scripture. And we even see that into our lives today um, with similar patterns, struggles that we have. We can go back to Genesis and see those same things happening with them. Uh, and so what's neat though is chapter 11 uh, in Leviticus goes through and it talks about the unclean animals, which serpents fall in that category. And so you've got sin, and then we got this talking about the unclean animals with serpents. Chapter 12 in Leviticus goes through and talks about childbirth in, in, in the garden. We have this, this burden of this, this harder childbirth that happens with uh, Eve. And then in 13 through 15, Leviticus talking about all this corrupt flesh, you know, like the, the scabs and the... Um, forehead baldness <laughs> is one of them and it says that, but they're clean <laughs> as well as not scabs so we're not we're not we don't have to go around saying unclean just because we were losing our hair um and, and but they address that it helps us us men that are losing hair and and, uh, and so it, it goes through all these the the corruption of the flesh right and that man has corrupted flesh we we have sickness and disease we have death and so it's just neat because that's the same thing he's talked about in garden of eden it's working through those I just think it's neat. Just a little side note for fun. Uh, but it leads us up to chapter 16. In chapter 16, the, the Lord reminds them again of what happened with Abihu and Nadab. In, in verse 1, it says, The Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And then the Lord gives Moses these instructions about the Day of Atonement. Um, Yom Kippur, I think is, I might be pronounced that wrong. Uh, but it's the Day of Atonement. It's, it's this, this day that's supposed to happen one time a year in which they, it's like a reboot. And so the idea is that over the course of the year, people in Israel are sinning and they give their sacrifices for their sins. But there's other sins that they commit that they hadn't even thought of. There's other sins that they've done that they hadn't had a sacrifice for to, to show that there's there's this death that needs to take place for the sin. And there's there's also, as all these animals are, are being taken and being sacrificed at the temple, at the tabernacle at the time, um, it, it it's a picture of all the sin coming in and being dealt with. But the idea is that there's also this cleaning that needs to take place at the temple. And so once a year, there's this thing called the Day of Atonement. It's, it's to address the sins that, of cleansing the, tape, the temple area, the, the tabernacle at the time, and also for taking care of the sins of the people. And so uh, the whole chapter 16 works through that, what the Day of Atonement is, and it's to be held every year, once a year. And in the process, the, the, the priest, 
Aaron in this particular section is to take a bull and sacrifice and then take the blood of the bull and put, you know, for his own cleansing, put some on the the ark inside the, the Holy of Holies. Uh, just, I think it's on the right side, but it's really detailed. And uh, just to take care of his own cleansing first. And, the, and then he goes out and they got two goats. And through the casting of lots of stuff, they decide which goat is which, but uh, one of them draws a short straw <laughs> and gets uh, sacrificed. And, th- and that goat is for the sins of the people. And then he goes after he's already cleansed himself in the temple. He then takes that and he does the same thing with the goat, uh, with that sacrifice for the sins of the nation of Israel. And the other goat, they place their hand upon and they, they confess all the, the sins of the nation. And then they have one man lead it out into the wilderness away from the camp. And this, it's called the scapegoat. Uh, and, and there's some stuff about this that none of us really know for sure. Like they, they say they take him out to Azazel. Uh, some think it might be a, a, a like sent it out to the devil, as to, the, to a demon to deal with, like away from us though. But we don't really know some of that detail. But so they have one that gets sacrificed and they have one that takes the sins out of the camp, takes the you know picture of the sins being removed far from them. And so we have this picture of this, this cleansing that takes place and it happens once a year. Uh, and that day that everybody was supposed to do no labor, they're supposed to all fast and not eat anything. Like just, it was a solemn day um, to, to point that this is not just the physical stuff, but this is, we need to take it seriously. This is a inner man thing, a spiritual thing, uh, not just the physical that was taking place, um, which it's kind of neat to think about um, uh, Israel and, and the sacrifice that took place because we know that not everyone in Israel was a believer in, in God. But what this did was is like a covering uh, of, of the wrath being poured out on them as a nation. It just kind of cleansed the whole nation uh, as a reboot, if you will, like starting over again every year. We need to take care of this because there's things that aren't being addressed. And so that's what brings us to, um, where we're at today as Christians, we know we don't have to sacrifice that stuff anymore. Hebrews uh, is very thorough with this day of atonement and how Christ has fulfilled all that. So what is the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement? It's our condition. Um, it, it, it starts there. We, we need atonement because of our condition. Uh, all mankind is under the curse of sin. All of mankind has been separated uh, from God due to sin. Uh, remember, God's holy, as we talked about last month, and so uh, we're separated. He, he doesn't look upon uh, sin. When we are sinners, uh, or on these different accounts, we are born alienated from God due to original sin, and we're also sinners because we choose to sin. We have a natural bend towards sin and self-focus. We are dead in our sin and unable to do anything on our own merit to remedy the situation. And so the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement teaches that God, the son, Jesus Christ took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived the perfect life. So he's the spotless lamb and he is eventually dying in our place since we deserve the judgment for our sins. It was on the cross that the father poured out his wrath on my sin uh, for, or on his son so that I could be forgiven. Jesus became the substitute for us as he endured the weight of our sins, just punishment he endured all the wrath of God our sin deserved, accepting his atoning work on the cross is the only way to salvation. Uh, atonement speaks to the doctrine that involves God's means. It's the, the work being done, not just 
a thing, but the work being done, the means by reconciling God and mankind through Christ. Uh, Grudem, Wayne Grudem has a uh, good definition here. Um, the atonement is the work of Christ that he did in his life and death to earn our salvation. The whole, the whole process of the life and death, the life part was important to be a spotless lamb, sinless, perfect, and the death, um, including the resurrection, is with that. Romans 3, 10 through 12, uh, as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together we've become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Uh, Romans 3.23, we all know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God uh, and are justified by his grace as a gift uh, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Uh, the idea of this propitiation is um, a, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. It deals with the wrath. Uh, it appeases the wrath, propitiation. Uh, letter E there. It's without the payment of our sin, we can never be acceptable to a holy God who cannot look upon sin. Uh, it had to be dealt with. Uh, he, he can't just overlook it. It would not be just to just overlook sin. It had to be paid for. But we couldn't pay for it. We needed a substitute. We needed someone else that could make that payment. Uh, I appreciate the Wayne Grudem here. He's got four needs that we have as sinners this is our estate outside of Christ. Uh, this is where every man begins his life. One is that we deserve to die as the penalty for sin. We, we know the verse. It's one of those ones we memorize. The wages of sin is death. Yeah, the wages of sin is death. Um, we deserve to die. It's the penalty for our sin. We deserve to bear God's wrath against us, uh, against our sin. I think of the the principle of the sowing and the reaping, right? If you're if you're sowing seeds of corruption, you're going to reap corruption, and and there's this principle that uh, you get what you deserve, and and we deserve to bear God's wrath against our sin. It's the natural fruit of our sin is God's wrath being poured on it. Uh, we are separated from God by our sins. Um, we talked about that uh, last month, and and. I forget which book, but the, the prophet is talking about like, you're, you have too pure of eyes to look on evil. Like he was confused on that. And he's a holy God. Uh, we're separated because of our sins and his holiness is to be, remember the holiness, the idea of that word is that it's separate. Uh, and so he's separated from all that. And so when we sin, we're separated from his holiness. Uh, number four, we are in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. This idea is the idea that we saw in Ephesians 2 that we looked at just last hour, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is, that's, a, that's a form of bondage, being dead. You can't get out of dead. When you're dead, you're dead. It's, it's a bondage. It's locked there. You're not going to escape it. That's our estate. But also he lists uh, for us four ways that Christ meets those four needs. And so these next four will coincide, the A with the A, the, the B with the B in your notes. I, I, actually, on my paper, I drew little lines connecting all of them as a reminder to myself. Um, and so when we were talking about how we deserve to die, we see that Christ was a sacrifice. This is what it's talking about. When we're talking about substitution, Christ is substituting himself for us. He is fulfilling this for us. He's taking care of that us deserving to die part. 
First uh, Peter two, twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds ye have been healed. He himself bore our sins. Uh, so he, just like the, the goats that we're talking about on the Day of Atonement, the, the sins of the people were put on the goat that was sacrificed. The sins of the, the people were put on the goat that was sent out as a picture of like the sins are being removed from the camp. It's dealt with, removed. He himself bore those sins. Uh, Christ was that, as John the Baptist says, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Uh, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin, right? But, but we've got a propitiation. It's a word we just looked up a little bit ago, or just saw. In 1 John 2.2. 2, he is the propitiation or the wrath-bearing sacrifice that satisfies. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh, this this text though does not mean that like his, the the God's wrath on all the world was taken care of for every single person. What John is talking about here is he's he's writing to to the some Jews and he's saying not ours only but for also the sins of the world in, in the, the generic sense of uh, is, is actually common for Jews to, to call the Gentiles, the world. And then you've, you know, Gentiles world, they use those terms interchangeably. And so when Paul's saying uh, he's a propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also for the sins of the world, he's saying like, not for us only, you know, Jews, but also for the sins of the world, the, the Gentiles, this, this, this wrath bearing sacrifice is available for all people. Not that, it has happened for all people for we know that God's wrath does get poured out on people that don't accept him uh, for all eternity because they can never even pay it given all eternity to pay for that sin against God. They're still, they just can't pay it. So that wrath is always upon them uh, in, in hell or lake of fire. Ultimately uh, John 17 uh, that we just read a little bit ago. Um, remember the, the, the prayer uh, Jesus, Jesus was praying, and, and he says, I, I pray f- not for the world, but those that you have given me. Right? This, this prayer, this union and stuff is, is, is for those that God has given to him, the, the children of God. It's, so there are those who don't believe. There are those who are not united. There are those who don't have their, their, the wrath that was upon them taken care of. The propitiation is for those that believe, uh, and that's John that's writing that. Um, it appeases God's one of the ways I've, I, I've seen this as well is that um, the work that Christ did on the cross has sheltered us at some level, given us time as, as a human, the whole earth deserves to be annihilated instantly. When we sin, we, we all deserve death. We've all sinned, but he has patience. He's slow to anger in this, this propitiation for the, the uh, uh, believers deals with our sin for all eternity. Uh, propitiation for the world as a whole deals with, there's not an immediate judgment right now uh, on them. There's this this time where they can repent, turn to him. Uh, part C, you are separated from God by our sins. Um, we are separated by God. Well, we've got this idea of reconciliation. This is how Christ deals with this. He, he substitutes and he helps. He brings us in there. In fact, we can, why don't we turn to that? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. In your notes, it, it says 10. It should be through 18. 17 through 18.
Uh, no, Second Corinthians five seventeen through eighteen. That uh, that eight I think just got cut in half. So it's just the Second Corinthians. This uh, this text is is so many good texts. I spoke on this in our uh, rise camp that we do in the summer last year. So 17 through 18, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if a man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Right? We, we talked about that last hour, our union Christ. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he's brought us back together. We're no longer separated. Uh, we're not just saved from our sins, but we're reconciled to him. We're brought into him. He's reconciled us, us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So just as he has reconciled us to himself, he's given us that same responsibility to reconcile each other, to, to help other people hear the gospel, to reconcile, to pull people to ourselves as, as a church and to God in salvation. This, this ministry of reconciliation. And, and he actually goes on, if, if we, you read with me down 19... Through 21 to it that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them you know that they deserve and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation he's given us this same responsibility of sharing the gospel calling people into relationship with God now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us we pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God so he's saying as believers we are ambassadors an ambassador represents one country to another. And so we have this ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors. We're to be calling people into this new country, this, this relationship with God. For he hath made him to be sin for us. This is the idea of the imputedness uh, on Christ. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might have Christ's righteousness, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so this this idea of reconciliation, this is the hope. We've got a hopeful message. We don't we don't have a, a message that we're supposed to share with people that condemns people. People are already condemned. Our message is a message of hope, a message of forgiveness, a message of reconciliation, a message of, hey, your sins have been forgiven. They've been dealt with. Turn to him. Um, but not only that, when you know when we are in bondage to sin, but he has redeemed us. This idea of Christ and his redemption. In Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, this idea of being purchased, being bought uh, from this, this bondage that we are in. And, and there is this deliverance that we get as we're bought out of that. We have the ability now to, to say no to sin. Before even our best deeds, before we were saved, we were in this bondage of sin. So even our best deeds, even when we did charitable things, and, and some of you might hear people say, well, he don't, he's not a Christian, but man, he's a good guy. But even the good deeds that they do are sinful deeds. Uh, when, when you're doing a good deed of, uh, let's say, outside of Christ, not a Christian, and you're doing a good deed of maybe helping the homeless, 
uh, giving them food, taking care of them. Or maybe you're doing the good deed of, of opening the door for, for a lady, <laughs> right? Or maybe you're doing the good deed of giving someone a, a cup of water when they're thirsty. All those stuffs are good stuff. We would say it's common grace of God, but all that stuff that they're doing in itself outside of Christ is sinful. Not a single one of those deeds were being done in, for God's glory. It was maybe out of their own sense of uh, someone might be watching, maybe their own sense of, uh, of boasting up themselves, right? Like they're like they feel guilt or something of, of sins that they've done in the past. And now they want to make themselves feel a little bit better because they've done good, maybe to outweigh it. But none of those deeds, though they're good deeds, but they're still they're still sin when they're not in Christ. It's only the believer that is saved from this bondage of sin, such that these good deeds are done outside of ourselves, but we do it because we serve a living God because of what he's done for us. He's changed us. And so he gets the glory for those deeds done. And so he's saved us. He's redeemed us. He's brought us into this, this newness of life. Uh, God is holy and just, uh, and he must punish sin. Uh, he'll in no way quit the wicked. He could, he, how could he accept sinners into fellowship with him unless the penalty was paid? Again, these, these verses. Romans 6.23 and Romans 5.12. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. He deals with it, uh, but there's no way man can pay for it, so Christ substitutes. Uh, what's, what's fun to think about all these four things is, is, again, it's a picture of stuff that we could not do Christ had to do that for us. He was our substitute. He was our atonement. The, the whole life, the whole process he did atoned. So how are we to understand guilt? Um, guilt is really part of the application side of this. Uh, those of us that have been forgiven or in Christ, um, our sin has been dealt with. It's been paid for. Guilt is culpability for wrongdoing. It is the result of having violated a rule or law. When we break the law, we are guilty. It's a state. It's not a feeling. We are guilty whether or not we recognize that we have broken the law. Um, I'm sure none of you have ever done that, but I have. I, I was leaving my parents' town up in Iowa, and I'm used to driving Highway 65. You go 65 miles an hour, right? In um, Iowa, it's not that way. That All those country roads are 55. I don't know if it's because of the deer or the farm tractors or what i mean it's you can see a lot farther it's all flat up there but i'm, I'm coming out of the town of spencer and i'm i'm driving and and just talking to my wife and and sometimes when i talk like bible stuff with or with her or politics my foot gets heavier <laughs> and and i and she's like hey she'll, she'll be like you need to slow down i'm like oh oh my well, this, that's what happened. Um, you know, I, I, I got up there like I was going like 60-something, and um, but it didn't feel like I was speeding. I didn't know I was speeding. You know, I'm used to going 65 on 60, 65 here. And uh, and so, sure enough, I, I got pulled over. And my parents even warned me. So they're like, the cops are always looking for cars just outside of town, right? When you come out of city limits from 35 and then jump goes to 45, and it seemed like it was forever before it was 55, but – uh, I was at a speed and I got pulled over and, and uh, you know, I, I was guilty. I didn't realize it. I didn't feel guilty. Uh, I was, I felt kind of frustrated <laughs> uh, whenever I got pulled. I'm like, 
oh, you're kidding me. I looked down like, I knew I was wrong at that point. But before I, uh, yeah, I got a ticket. Yeah. My wife was driving. She probably could have got out of it. But um, but not me. No. No sympathy for me. And so, uh, and I explained, I'm like, I, yeah, I apologize and stuff. I said, I didn't even realize it. And he's like, well, <laughs> he gave me a ticket anyways. That's, that's fine. I, de- I deserved it. Though I didn't feel like it. I didn't, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't, you know, it just happened. Um, and we've all done that in different ways. Uh, we've all, we're all guilty in different ways of things that we don't even realize that we were guilty for. Um, so you may not feel it. We may be totally unaware or uncaring, but we are still guilty uh, when we've done the wrong. Guilt is not simply the feeling or the emotion that is often associated with guilt. Guilt is the condition or state of violation of some law. We're all guilty of breaking God's standards and laws. The you know the Romans three ten and twenty three. Uh, we not all we're not always we must always be aware that guilt or feeling uh, we may not always be aware. Sorry, we may not always be aware of the guilt or the feeling, but we are guilty nonetheless. Uh, Jay Adams, um, you know, a big, basically really one of the starters with our biblical counseling movement. Uh, he points out that the need for biblical counselors is to help counselees recognize the reality that being guilty and feeling guilty are two different concepts. Usually for counselees as well as counselors, the two com- concepts are not distinguished. Uh, it's important to distinguish that. Guilt in past generations had always meant culpability. Uh, but it was really with the, the present culture and psychology that the word guilt seems to get applied to much more on the emotional side. You know, the, the feeling guilty, the feelings of guilt, they'll say. We should recognize that it's not enough to simply deal with the emotions of guilt. Some of the, actually, some of the psychologies out there will tell you that um, if someone feels guilty about a particular behavior and that's troubling them and turmoil, that instead of repenting of the behavior and the, the act, that instead they should do that behavior more so that they eventually just don't have any guilt about it. They don't feel that guilt anymore. That's some of these psychologists, that's their way of dealing with guilt is to sear the conscience enough that you no longer feel guilty for doing that. Because they remember, they're coming from a, a most of them from a worldview that there is no God. And so the emotion stuff, there is no law. There is no reason to have this guilt feeling if there's no higher standard outside of ourselves. And so they, they say embrace it until you no longer feel guilt. But again, guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is a, the culpability. It's, it's, it's what you are. You are guilty when you break laws. Medications and other means to relieve counselees from their feelings of guilt uh, would be disastrous because it's, it's taking away this feeling that might have been pointing towards uh, an area where they've sinned. And I say might. Uh, this attempt to merely deny or cover the feelings of guilt could even lead to the searing of the conscience. Uh, we must treat the cause of, of the feelings of guilt. So the, you know, the question is, is it possible to have uh, guilt without the feelings? You should say, yeah, that's what we just learned, right? It's possible to not feel it, but be guilty. But it's also possible to feel guilty, but not be guilty. You ever, you ever been around someone that tried to get you in that boat <laughs> where, where like it, you had not done a, a thing wrong, but they wanted you to feel wrong. They wanted you to feel bad, maybe for something someone else did or because you're in that, that same group of people. They, they might want you to feel the guilt, though you have no guilt. Like you've not done the wrong, but they would like to place that upon you. And you might actually believe them and start to feel guilt and then feel like you have to appease that somehow. 
atone for that. But it's possible to have the feelings without the guilt, just as much as it's possible to have the guilt without the feelings. We do not drive things based on our feelings. Feelings might be an indicator that there's something going on in our belief system, maybe good or bad, um, but we can't go based off our feelings. We must also recognize uh, that we often perceive small sins um, aren't so small in the eyes of God. We can, we can think of that like uh, the Garden of Eden, right? A, a simple command not to eat the fruit. Um, some of us would think, man, that's a really small disobedience. Uh, I remember with my, my oldest son, uh, he did so, so well. After, he had a lot of correction uh, before he was two. Um, a lot of people talk about their kids and the terrible twos is when they start. Uh, Hunter was uh, like a year and a half when he started his terrible twos. Um, and so we had to just deal with that a lot of correction. But, you know, there's a point when he got older, um, you know, three or four, when when we're standing on the patio, I we weren't, I, was, I didn't want him to go outside and stuff, but I thought, I said, hey, let's go ahead and just, we'll, we'll just hang out on the patio here. Well, there's there's grass and then there's patio. And I made it clear to stay on the patio and not the grass. And he obeyed. As much as he loves the outdoors and wanted to go out in the grass, but there's a lot of discipline that happened at the year one and a half. And he might have gotten fairly close to it, but he didn't. I could tell you another example. <laughs> one time uh, we were at my grandma's house, and she's got this nice, beautiful Voss vase, however you say it. It's, it's a big one, pretty, uh, breakable. And uh, and he was little still, um, not talking a whole lot, but, you know, he's, he's little. And uh, we told him, you know, don't touch it. And we knew that he wouldn't touch it uh, because he had shown that he obeys um, at that point, and, and he delightfully obeys. And, and so he would obey, but... Then he took his teddy bear in the teddy bear's arm and the teddy bear touched the vase and he looked at us while he was doing it and he, and, and we're like, so he got disciplined for it. And he was like, the teddy bear touched it. He was just like barely talking. He's like teddy bear or whatever, whatever the word was. Yeah. It wasn't me. He, he did it. Uh, but small sins is what I'm talking about. You know, like, Staying on the porch as opposed to going on the grass. See, if he would have gone on the grass, he would have been sinning in disobedience against his father. It's a small sin. It's, it's not like he, you know, went out there and injured someone or hurt someone or lied or, or you know, but it was a disobedience. And he, he, thankfully he didn't in that case. But with the teddy bear, uh, we, was, we, we joke about it. It's, it's, it seems like such a small sin, but it was disobedience. It was a sin. Uh, and sometimes we see sins as such small sins, and but they're not small sins in God's eyes. The smallest of sin is a sin against an infinite holy God and deserved an infinite punishment. Um, we live in a reality of our sinful bent, but we also live in the reality that it's been forgiven through Christ's substitutionary death. Without Christ, everyone is guilty. Just one sin makes us guilty before God, and none of us have just done one sin. Uh, a, a few things we could consider, and it's in your notes, I think, is the issues of like murder, right? Right. Uh, I don't know if anyone in here has murdered anybody. I'm, I'm assuming not, but we've probably been like unjustly angry towards somebody. And, and Christ says that if you have anger stored up in your heart like that, it's like murder. Um, and then consider sexual sins and lust, you know, maybe no one in here has committed adultery. Maybe they have, I don't, I don't know. Um, but this idea of lust in our heart of desiring to have something that isn't ours to have, um, 
he says it's the same as already committing adultery, even though it's just in their hearts, just in the thoughts, Matthew 5, 28. So these, these things that we might take so small, or in many cases, I would say the stuff that we don't even think about, um, the, the, there's the sins of commission and omission, right? The omission is the stuff that you didn't, you just didn't do, you failed to do when you should have done, uh, the, the lovingness that you just didn't have. You weren't prepared for that fruit. Wasn't, you weren't abiding such that fruit manifested at that time, um, because of, of sin, the stuff we don't think about the small stuff. That's what we need a substitution. We need Christ's sacrifice and thankfully he, he provides it. Some of the implications, all of mankind stands guilty before God. You got a counselee that is guilt, feels guilty about sin and stuff, right? Well, well, they should feel guilty about sin, but that's not the feelings that makes them guilty. The guilt is that they are guilty uh, because of sin. But we know that Christ has made atonement. There must be an atonement, a righting of the wrong, an appeasement, a just and a full payment. Um, and the reason that Christ can make that full payment as one man is he has of infinite value. And I, I shared this last month also, but the, in, in case you forget, it's, it's the idea of, you know, a brother sinning against each other. There's some consequences for that, but if they sin against their parents. There's a much greater consequence. I just had to talk to my youngest one, Finn, last night when we got home from the sessions, uh, uh, he, he didn't share the best words with, uh, not like y'all would consider it very small, <laughs> but the tone in which he responded to, uh, Lacey, he had to get his asthma medicine. He wasn't excited about having to come upstairs and do it. And, uh, but I had to address, it. I said, it's, it, you shouldn't even talk to your brothers with that tone yet alone your mom. And we had a conversation, but imagine if it, you go to the next level, if you do a small, uh, maybe push your brother or sister, if you've got sisters, uh, I had a sister and, and that's my illustration. <laughs> we would shove each other often. Not, not a good example, but, uh, you know, you might push your brother or sister and you might have a consequence of, you know, uh, spank her and go to your room, whatever it might be. And, uh, but I've never pushed my parents <laughs> ever. <laughs> I wouldn't have this hand right now, <laughs> and, but, uh, the consequence would be much greater. And then if you go to a police officer, how much greater that would be to a mayor or to the president, right? You might not even get close enough to do that. It might be put down. Um, like there's, there's these levels of the severity of the punishment is greater based upon the person that you're sinning against. And so we got God who's of infinite value and worth as a creator and, and, um, of, and we're creation uh, and sinning against him is of infinite assault. It's of infinite uh, importance of, of punishment. And we can't pay for that. But Christ is of infinite worth. He's worth all that. He, he's worth more than everything on earth and the galaxies, all of it. He's greater value. And so he can make that payment for our sins. Uh, all of them, not just a few. Past, but also present, future. Um, he gives us peace. Uh, John I think it might have it. John 3, 16, 17, right? Uh, this the idea of, of him dying for our sins. Uh, but while we're on the, the topic here, we also might consider um, what does it mean to trust Jesus? Uh, it is entirely possible for someone to go their whole life at church learning the Bible and saying they believe the Bible. Um, they believe that Jesus was a historical person. They might even, you know, confess they believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Um, they might say that they believe 
Moses, you know, walked through the Red Sea with the, with the Israel as the Exodus. They might even say they believe in, you know, the, a young earth, you know, that Genesis account of a six days of creation um, is real. They might say they believe in everything that the Bible says. They might say they believe that Christ is coming again, uh, that there's this day of judgment on the great white throne. They might say they believe all that, but that doesn't mean that they've trusted Christ as their Savior. Um, you can have people, I, I think of, uh, as, uh, someone, no, in the other room, I was talking with someone, maybe you've heard of the name Jordan Peterson. He's this guy out of Canada, psychologist, big Carl Jung fan. Um, but he, he stands in some strong positions, uh, good, strong, conservative, good, truthful positions he holds to, uh, he's not a Christian, uh, by his own testimony. He believes the Bible though. Um, he may not believe it like we believe it. He believes a lot of it's allegorized. Um, but he, he's like, the Bible is the best book ever. He, he's amazed by it. Uh, the, the stuff he pulls out of it, truths that he believes, but he's not a Christian. He hasn't believed unto salvation. So what does it mean to trust in Christ alone for salvation? Trust means that you rely on it. You're banking on it. It's not just that you say, oh, I believe those things. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. It, it all lines up and everything fits, cross-references. Cross Jordan Peterson said, you know, the Bible has like over 60,000 cross-references. He says it's the very first hyperlink book ever made because it's just, it's saturated, consistency throughout. Uh, he's amazed by it, but he doesn't rely on it. He's afraid in his own confession, his own words. He's afraid of what it would mean in his life if he truly accepted this as truth and relied on it. Trust means to rely on the truthfulness of something or someone. It means to hope in the sense of an honest expectation, to expect confidently. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. To trust is to believe wholeheartedly in its truthfulness or accuracy of someone or something. You put your faith, trust in what you're trusting for the ability to accomplish what you are trusting to be done. I, a simple illustration. You've probably all heard this growing up in a youth group somewhere. <laughs> uh, you know, this chair. I, I could say, yeah, it's a chair. It'll hold me up if I sit in it. But there's a difference between that and when I'm recognized that I'm weary and needing to rest. And like, I know this could hold me up. I Let's say my legs are just exhausted. We did paintball a couple weeks ago. The guys did. Oh, my goodness. I realize how old I am. Man, my muscles. I, I In my mind... I grew up doing paintball and stuff. In my mind, I'm thinking, I could I could get, run up there. I'm going to jump up on this platform and grab the flag and go. And by the time I ran to the platform, I was like, my legs are done. I hadn't gone very far at all. And and I did get it. And then I realized I, I accidentally cut a corner and went through a spot I'm not supposed to go through. So I had to go back around and then go up. But, man, my legs were just dying. Uh, and, and so uh, – Let's say I'm just exhausted after that. And that was after a lock-in I did at the youth group here. So we were up all night, and then I went and played paintball. Um, someone else drove me, though, thankfully, because I couldn't go. Lacey wouldn't let me go unless someone drove me. So someone drove me there, and I was like a zombie getting shot at. And, but I, I, my legs were exhausted. So imagine I'm just exhausted. I haven't slept all night. I've just done paintball. When I got home, I crashed. But, like, imagine if I was like, I, that bed looks comfortable, but I, I believe it will hold me up. I'll just, right? Would you really believe that I believe that? As opposed to, you know, if I'm exhausted, I sit down and I'm like, oh man, this chair does hold me up. I believe it does. I'm not even going to like question it. I didn't, when I just sat down on this, I didn't, 
I didn't check it for stability. There might have been a nut or bolt missing. I didn't know. I just trusted it. I sat in it comfortably, believing it'll hold me up. Now, this chair may not have <laughs> held me up. It's we've had it for a while, um, but I trusted that it would. And so that's the idea: is, is that you can say you trust and believe this is a chair and that it would hold you up, but relying on it in in earnest expectation. Uh, is what it really means to trust. In salvation, this means that we're trusting the word of God to be accurate. We're trusting God who gave us his word to do what he says he will do in providing the way of salvation for us. And if we say that we believe, then our actions should demonstrate that we believe. Not that we're just saying this is all good stuff, but I'm going to continue doing this. We should act on what we say we believe uh, if we have true faith. And that's what the whole book of James, right? Talks about, uh, faith that works. I was, I, when I was younger, I thought I'd write a commentary on James. I got like four pages into it <laughs> and I'm like, I'll leave this up to the scholars. But my, my title of the commentary is going to be faith that works, faith that works. But if we truly have faith, uh, trust in him, it'll have actions. Uh, we've seen in the, the, um, part C in your notes, uh, that we deserve condemnation as Grudem identified with those four things. Um, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it reminds us again that grace alone is not works, not of ourselves. It is a gift unearned, unmerited, without any room for us to boast. It is not accomplished through religious ceremonies. It is salvation through faith in Christ alone, not of works. It is trust in the work of Christ alone to be sufficient and not trusting in other means to achieve the atonement for our sins, as Adam and Eve tried to do, as as many tried to do, to atone for sins through works. We can't. We put our faith and trust that his word is true. He is saving us. He is changing us. That's what it means to trust in him. Uh, later on, they're going to find faith in another session, so we won't do that. There's no other way than the way that God has provided through Christ, as we've seen. And so where might this apply even in our, our own theology and our counseling? And that might be in the, I think the biggest part from this that we can take away with a substitutionary atonement is um, guilt, right? There is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ, right? If, if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, those feelings maybe of, of past guilt, as this young lady in the back mentioned, right? This forgiveness, we don't have to believe those feelings, if we are a believer in Christ, we have been forgiven. Those have been dealt with. They've been paid. There's no more wrath of God to be poured out on us for those sins. They have been fully poured out on Christ. I had a, a, a man that was struggling with some sins, and uh, I caught him in it. And uh, and this is after talk with him for a while. And, and uh, he he came came home and I was there at his house already and, and he was in sin and, and he was just so upset with himself. He's like, Oh, just, just hit me. Just, just punch me in the face. And, and I'm like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to punch you in the face. And then he, he started hitting himself. I'm like, no, you need to stop. And I held him. And, and I was like, look, Christ has already done this for you. He's already taken that punishment. Sure. We, it might be a way that we get, we want to take care of the feelings of guilt. You know, when we've sinned, we want to somehow do something to, to take care of it ourselves, but we don't need to do that. Christ has already paid for our sins. He's already taken that wrath, that punishment at the degree that was just and perfect. 
you beating up on yourself, cutting yourself, whatever it may be, is not going to take care of it. That is not enough. It deserves uh, the wrath of God being poured out infinitely, and only an infinite God, Jesus, was able to handle that. And he offers that freely for atoning. And so, again, just helping your counselor think through that, ourselves think through it, um, and then trusting this, this humility of recognizing our need for a Savior. Uh, just complete, de- helping them see the dependence on Christ. That's not of the works that they do. It's just Christ that does it. And it's Christ that changes us as we abide in him with last hour. Uh, so that's all I got for you. It, it all ties together with our soteriology and with our union in Christ, uh, this atoning work of, of Christ that takes care of that wrath of God that was towards us. All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, your next session will be at 1125. So we're two minutes early on this break. Just be quiet in the hallway in case they're going a little bit longer. Thank you all. Thank you. 